Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. All right, the scripture reading this morning is from John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went out where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the second to last week in our Eastertide series. Uh, where we're talking about the Stations of the Resurrection, aided by the artwork of Scott Erickson. And uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed the series. I know I have personally, uh, where we get to see the stories where Jesus shows up after his resurrection in very unexpected and surprising ways. This, uh, this week, we're actually, this is the second part of like a two-part series within this one moment that happens in John 21, where we think that John has wrapped up his gospel. It reads like that in John 20. I actually thought that it was done. This was my confession a a week ago. I thought that it was done in John 20. And then you continue to read. It's like an epilogue in John 21, what happens here. What we begin to realize is that here in this story, we see that we find Jesus' resurrection in John 20, but we don't yet see the implications of what happens to the followers of Jesus until stories like this, in particular to a person named Peter. A little background around Peter, this biblical character, who is also previously named Simon. Um, a little background about him. Uh, Peter met Jesus on a, on a night, a very same sea where he is interacting with Jesus here, uh, after a fruitless night of fishing. They got nothing. I've been there before. You wake up, you go out there, you have nothing to pull in. And then there's this interaction that he has with Jesus, and there's this miraculous catch. And Peter begins to realize, oh, this person in front of me is not just a wise sage, that this is like, this is the king. This is the savior. He's here in front of me. This is the Lord. And he falls on his knees and and pleads for Jesus to get away from him because he's a sinful man. But then Jesus, in this moment of grace, calls him to follow me. That's the, the two words that disrupted all of Peter's life was the simple and profound invitation, a simple invitation to follow me. And Peter left everything and followed Jesus. And for the next three years, Peter followed Jesus. He had front row seat to seeing Jesus do his incredible work. Uh, Peter saw miracles. He heard teachings. Peter got to walk on water, y'all, like just for a little bit. But he walked on water for a little bit. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus calm the sea with his voice. The most unbelievable, uh, unbelievable acts in history all were seen by Peter because of these two words, 
follow me. And even one day, Jesus turned to Peter and said, your name is no longer Simon, it's Peter, which means rock, because you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. It's going to be built upon you, Peter. And this story, you can imagine if Peter's experience, like in hearing that, expectations are like way, way big for Peter's life. But then it takes this unexpected turn. When Jesus, three years into his ministry, he begins to give this warning. This is Mark chapter 14. Uh, He gives this warning. He said, "You you will all fall away. For it's risen, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Then Peter declared with all might and all certainty, right? Uh, Even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Peter is this bold, emotional, impulsive character that believes his devotion to Jesus is unmatched by anyone else. But soon after this very conversation, his world falls apart. Jesus was taken into captivity, he was beaten, and his death was made imminent. They took Jesus into custody, and the scripture says that Peter, Peter followed from a distance. So throughout this whole evening, Peter is nearby Jesus, watching everything happen. And then all of a sudden people started noticing Peter, this guy who's like a creep, who just keeps following this moment. And they go, wait a minute, I've seen you before. You were, you were with Jesus. You're, you're one of his followers. And Peter, this one who was so devout, so certain, begins denying, he begins to deny knowing Jesus. And then Luke 22, this is a moment. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him. He's a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And get a load of this. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this before. Verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. So Peter is at this fire with other people, disowns Jesus, rooster crows, and Peter and Jesus share this moment, this glance, this look at one another. And then Peter, with this, the rooster crow, with this look, this knowing look, Then Peter remembered the words the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today. You will disown me three times. And verse 62 says, and Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Don't you think that gaze, that look between Jesus and Peter would always be seared in his mind? I mean, just imagine, if you will, what was Jesus' face like? What What was his glance like? Was it a face of disappointment? Was it a face of just knowing? Was it a kind of compassionate look between them two? Was it just a, a face of blank of emotion? I'm not sure. But whatever it was, I'm, sh- I'm sure that for, for Peter, it was just, it was imprinted upon his mind and his heart. He would always have that face known. And then Peter goes off and weeps bitterly. Have you ever thought of which, which action was worse, Judas or Peter's? I mean, in many ways, Judas just, they just wanted to know where Jesus was, and Judas said, I'll tell you where he is, and he told him. But Peter, 
actually disowns Jesus. Three times, Peter says, I don't know him. I'm not with him. There's something about that that's actually, for me, much more disturbing. Because from in that, in that bitter moment, Peter then sees, perhaps sees, Jesus hanging from a cross and his lungs stop expanding. And with Jesus' death, so is all the dreams he had for his future. So is the promise that he would be the rock of which the church would be built. And Peter, in that moment, would also carry the regret of disowning his friend, his loved one. And you have to imagine for him, like, just the weight of that all, and even the memory of saying, I never knew him, just ringing in his ears. But aren't you so happy the story's not over there? Like, it's not a tragedy. The story is not a tragedy. Because Easter interrupts this with this despair because Jesus was alive and, and, and he just brought back all of the hope and the joy of his followers. But don't you imagine that for Peter, he still held on to regret and shame and guilt, wouldn't you? Like even though Jesus is alive, there's joy in that, but there's also part of you that's a bit broken and fractured internally. What we'll see here, the reason why I think John did not end his gospel in, 20, in chapter 20 is because the resurrection of Jesus is more than his own resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is the resurrection of meaning and hope among his followers, that we are a resurrected people as well. It's not just about Jesus. It's not just his story. Well, we'll see that here in this beautiful moment between Peter and Jesus in this station of the resurrection because Eastertide undoes the power of shame and regret. And that is for us as well. So as we talked about last week, Peter returns to fishing um, after Jesus uh, dies and has heard that he's alive again. He returns to fishing. He goes back to what he knows. But then Jesus recreates this incredible, profound moment because once again, with Jesus, there's this miraculous catch where all of a sudden, you know, they have a, a, a fruitless night of fishing once more, and they have this incredible uh, catch with Jesus' words. And then, and hearing that it was Jesus, noticing that, Peter jumps into the water and begins to swim to shore. And in that swim, I wonder if just, it felt like just the weight of, of it all was just being washed away from him. All the emotions that Peter must have felt in that swim. This moment is a profound moment. J.R. Tolkien, who, who is the author of The Lord of the Rings, I love how he, he made up a word. He made up a word that I absolutely love. It's this word, eucatastrophe. The, um, the, this word, you, uh, means good. Good. So it's like a good catastrophe. This moment is a eucatastrophe. It's this moment where this, it's like a catastrophic moment of goodness where it seemed that sorrow and gloom and despair were the only possibilities. But then this catastrophe of goodness takes place. And all of a sudden, there's a sudden turn of events where joy and goodness and safety are released. And it's devastatingly good. And it wrecks wrecks you with unexplained joy. This moment on the beach and Easter in general is a eucatastrophe. It's the ultimate one. And it takes place in Jesus' life. And it takes place in Peter's life. It changes everything. So after eating breakfast, Jesus turns to Peter and begins to ask him a question. He asked him a question three different times. And the question was, 
Do you love me? Peter would pledge his love, and then Jesus would call him to feed and care for the sheep or lambs. This exchange became difficult upon the third question, perhaps because repeating the same question three different times recalled the thing that Peter held on to, the source of shame and regret in his own life of disowning Jesus three different times. In John 21, verse 17, it says this, The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, notice the name he's calling Peter, way back when, your previous identity, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus came to Peter in the midst of his guilt and separation, perhaps with these three questions, to unwind his guilt, unwind his denial, like surgically remove the cysts of regret and shame from his soul. And it's surprising for me. It's surprising that Jesus didn't direct, directly address his sin. He didn't waste time with I told you so rhetoric. Jesus is doing something altogether different. Instead, he's reinstating Peter. He is making him whole again. He's recalling to Peter the purpose that God always had for him. In many words, Jesus is saying, I'm not done with you. I'm not done with you yet. You probably thought it was all dead and buried in that tomb along with me, and maybe even now resurrected that I'm moving on with someone else, but I'm sharing a different glance with you around a fire, just like I did earlier. And it's the glance of making you whole. It's the, it's the look of love. It's the look of restoration. Because now you see who I am, truly. And I see who you've always been. I often think of this story I heard. I'm not sure where I heard it, but I love it. It's the story um, that a friend shared a long time ago where he was at McDonald's. And there was this mother and father with a kid, and they were sitting at the table, and the kid was acting up a little bit, and, he, and they could tell that the parents were a little bit on edge, and the, the child knocked over their, their cup, and soda went all over the table. And the parents kind of loudly were chastising the child. Look what you did. You know, they're running. They're trying to napkin up all the mess and everything else, and the child was looking around the room ashamed of what they did. And this older man locked eyes with his child and looked at her and then with one hand just knocked over his cup <laughs> and spilled his Coke all over his table. And just with this look, just smiled at her. And I remember hearing that story and going, there is a lot that can happen in a glance. There's a lot that can happen just by removing shame and guilt, many of us have internalized that our expectation of God's gaze upon us, warts and all, our expectation that God's gaze upon us is disappointment, perpetual disappointment. I know that's the gaze that I've internalized. I don't know why or how, but this is this gaze of, man, you haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> you're, you're not there yet. Maybe God's gaze of love and acceptance is further out there for the better version of me, but for me in my cycles of brokenness and failure, it's a different kind of gaze that I have earned from God. We expect this gaze of approval to be reserved for better versions of ourselves. 
But what if the gaze that Jesus has for us in the midst of our subtle denials, in the midst of our regrets, is a look of love and acceptance that goes deeper than the exterior of our life, that tries to shame us? Maybe there's a knowing look that claims us upon God's love and grace. It reminds me of my favorite scene uh, from this movie, Hook. You all remember the movie, Hook? Okay, so Robin Williams... He was Peter Pan. He goes off and he like leaves Neverland. The more time that goes by, the uh, more he forgets who he was. And he becomes a lawyer of all things, y'all. A lawyer. Uh, and a workaholic. And he has these kids. And, um, but there's something that happens. Captain Hook goes and, and kidnaps his children. And he, Peter, has to go back to Neverland. And um, my favorite scene in this movie, uh, I'll tell you what, Will, will you come here, please, Will? Yeah, 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 I heard you. I love this scene, guys, I love this scene, because he's there with the Lost Boys. Have a seat, buddy. He's there with the Lost Boys, and, and I think it was Tinkerbell who was like, no, he's Peter. He doesn't think he's Peter. No one else thinks he's Peter Pan, but then there's this one kid, like the, the cutest kid in the world, who comes up to him and starts doing this thing. And let's just make it weirder. Just does this thing. And y'all remember this scene? I could have pulled it up on the internet, but I didn't want to. I want to do this. He does this and starts, Claire, you don't have to leave. It's going to be over with in a second. It starts just like, moving his face around, and then all of a sudden looks at him and says, there you are. And all of the children go by, and they go, that is him, right? Are you done with this moment? Sure. Okay. (laughs) And it's this moment where it's like all of the wrinkles, all of the past All of the forgetting gets pulled back, and all of these kids go, there you are. Like, for me, this is the work of God's grace in our life. Because we all have that. The wrinkles of a hard life, the scars of regret, the soot of shame, the makeup, the mascara of pretension of trying to cover up ourselves. And there's the grace of God that says, I know who you are. I know who you are. This station, this moment that we have in in this passage is the knowing moment where the grace of Jesus claims who Peter is for once and for all. And that goes beyond his denial, his shame, his regrets, all of that past. And it goes beyond that to say there's something even more beautiful about this. This is why for me, the Easter story is not done in chapter 20 because the story is not a story of just Jesus' uh, restoration. It's about Peter's. It's about all of our restoration. And in light of Jesus' grace, you are more than your regrets. You are more than the cycles of failure that we are tied to. You're claimed by a love that's defeated death, that, that, that claims us beyond our sin, and that won't be held back by weak religion or rule-keeping. What we see in this story, this redemptive work, the grace of Jesus goes beyond forgiveness. 
The grace of Jesus actually restores us. It brings us back to what our intended purpose was always met. That's why each time Jesus uh, asked him, do you love me? And he said, yes. Each time Jesus said, well, feed my sheep. He's like giving him a purpose. And this whole story, this whole passage ends with a simple invitation. Two words that first wrecked Peter's life. It's brought to him once again, and it's the words, follow me. It ends with that. It began with that. And so it is with you and me. The station is a reminder that we cannot cancel ourselves in Jesus' kingdom, that Jesus' grace is restorative and it is relentless. I'm a huge fan of Ted Lasso. We have any Ted Lasso fans in the room? Okay. All right. Are we okay with this being the last season? Are we all right with it? No, we wanted to go on. I actually, I loved the episode Sunflowers, the one where they're in Amsterdam. Anyone? All right, so I'm going, to show, I'm going to show a little clip from this. Don't worry, if you haven't, you're not caught up, don't worry about it. It's no spoilers in here. But I really loved this episode, in particular this one moment. Uh, Ted is considering quitting. This is not a spoiler, but he's considering quitting. And he has this moment while in Amsterdam where he goes to the Vincent van Gogh Museum and has this interaction with one of the employees of the museum. So let's see if we can show that clip. One doesn't expect to get from life what one has already learned it cannot give. Rather, one begins to see that life is a kind of sowing time. And the harvest is not yet here. He was just a humble preacher's son. And yes, he had his demons, but they never stopped him from searching for beauty. Because when you find beauty, you find inspiration. If, that is, you stay as determined as Vincent. Never stop, no matter how many failures. When you know you're doing what you're meant to do, you have to try. Where I'm from, Kansas, my home. This here this is our state flower. Hmm. I want you to have this. Uh, we close in three minutes. Mercy buckets. <laughs> Isn't that the best ending? Mercy buckets. This scene right here is about uh, persistence. Persistence. That's what this moment is taking place, this interaction. The writers of this story is talking about how do you persist in the face of failure, in the face of your demons, of your lesser nature? How do you persist? And this in individual is telling Ted Lasso that you persist by being inspired by beauty. That's what Vincent Van Gogh was. It's, persistence isn't about found by mustering up strength or sheer, uh, sheer willpower, but it's actually through being inspired, through being inspired by beauty. That's what it was for Vincent Van Gogh. Beauty made him persist to not give up. How does beauty factor into the Christian life if we were to apply the same idea? Well, how can the, the notion of beauty fuel us and inspire us? 
What I've come to believe is that there's nothing more beautiful than grace. There's just nothing more beautiful than grace. And that is what inspires us to persist. That's what inspires us to keep going. That's what inspires us to actually believe that God could use someone like me, warts and all, shame and regret and failure in my past. I'm captivated by a beauty of God's grace that God, for whatever reason, is willing to display again and again and again, perhaps to convince me and you that there's something truer about ourselves than the outward shell of regret that we might carry. The deepest identity, the deepest, most core role that you will ever play in this life is God's beloved. It's the deepest thing that you will ever be. You could try to run from it. You could try to deny it. You could try to escape from it. But it is who you have been called to be. And I promise you, a million different ways in your life, Jesus wants to demonstrate that you have been claimed by an aggressively, aggressively uh, active grace of Jesus that won't be held back. It's relentless, y'all. And so, as much as we might neglect it, as much as we might reject it, Jesus' gaze upon Peter, Jesus' gaze upon you, is that of love and acceptance, grace and mercy. Jesus' final moments with Peter would not be this knowing look when this rooster crows and Peter shares his denial. It would be a restoring look of grace and of love. This is not just Peter's station, this moment is for all of us. You've been claimed by a mighty and powerful grace. Jesus' gaze upon you is that of love and forgiveness and restoration. Jesus also not only forgives you, but wants to invite you to do the very thing that he wanted from the very beginning, which is to follow him. Friends, no one is beyond that kind of redemption and restoration. It is here, it is present and it's through the powerful, resurrected grace of Jesus where we will finally discover who we are. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about The Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to The Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.